Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And for the first time in my life since the accident, I took back control. And the hardest thing I'd ever done was no longer being hit by that car. It was my choice and I had put myself into that situation and it was such an empowering feeling. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Vanessa Rock, also known as the girl on the bike. Vanessa is a motorcyclist who competes in some of the toughest enduro events in the world. She had an awful accident seven years ago that left her with a series of life-changing injuries and long-term chronic pain. In this episode, we talk about her accident, her recovery and the mindset that forged the person she is today. It's a frank, real and humbling expose on what it's like to live with chronic pain and long-term injuries, but it's also an exhilarating insight into what it takes to ride motorcycles in extreme and harsh environments. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Vanessa Ruck. Cool. Well, let's start at the start. Please, can you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. I'm Vanessa Ruck, also known as The Girl on a Bike. And the easiest way to describe me is a motorcycle rider, racer and adventurer and also a 4x4 ride driver. So it <laughs> kind of gives you a pretty good idea of what I do. I think the key thing to realise is that I haven't been doing this my whole life. It's really a result of a pretty unusual journey into motorsports, but something that I'm definitely enjoying and pushing through quite a lot of my own mental and physical barriers to be able to do. But I ride a lot of different types of motorcycles and I've done some of the most extreme endurance races in the world on a motorcycle off-road. Ace. So before we get into all of that, you say you haven't been doing this forever. So who were you before and what did you do? Yeah, technically, I guess I was the same person, but I suppose the event that changed my course in life definitely changed the person who I am today. And actually, I can look back at it now and see it's for the better, like the journey in life, which is a very strange thing to think about. But I was previously an adrenaline junkie. I lived for extreme sports, kite surfing, wakeboarding, rock climbing, snowboarding, snow kiting, everything in my life was revolved around pushing myself physically and mentally in sports. I was incredibly career driven as well. I was an account director in marketing and did crazy hours in the office, was, was doing really pretty successfully, climbing up the ranks. And then every second I wasn't in the office, it was like sports, you know, getting in the van on a Friday night, heading to the beach for the wind, kite surfing the weekend, gymming in my lunch break, cycling to work every day. I was pretty driven, motivated and very active. And that's probably the easiest way of summarising. Addicted to sports, for sure. And you said, you know, I mean, we'll maybe talk about this later in detail, but like, it's probably for the better that things have changed. 
this is not a loaded question, just interested in the truth, but given the kind of career side of things and the sports whenever possible kind of things, how happy were you with your previous life? I loved it. I was incredibly happy. I I really enjoyed work. I was really fulfilled by my work. It was a very high pressure, high stress role, but I thrive under those conditions. And I physically was doing incredibly well in my sports. I was I was actually a team rider for a local kite surfing shop. Like we used to go on amazing holidays like to Brazil and Dakar and all over the place, you know, doing our sports snowboarding in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. I loved it. Honestly, I, I wasn't unhappy in any way at all. I was with my, my now husband. We had a very active, happy life together, honestly. What changed? Good question. So, in short, I got hit by a car. Long answer... It was a very normal Tuesday and I'd been in the office all day. I was actually on the way to the wakeboarding lake to meet my husband and some friends for the evening. And I got on my bicycle. Now, it's worth noting that I've introduced myself as a professional motorcycle rider. I was not an active motorcycle rider at the time of this accident in 2014. So I got on my bicycle to head to the lake and I got about a mile down the road coming out of central Oxford. A car coming the other way decided not to stop at their red light. And life as I knew it changed in that very instant. Now, I was not a bleeding mess on the side of the road. I was not scraped up by paramedics or anything dramatic. I did go to hospital in an ambulance. I was pretty shaken up. You know, I'd just been hit by a car. And later that night, I got discharged with bruising. Now, if we fast forward seven years, which was sort of the bulk of my recovery, I've since had seven surgeries, including a reconstructed right shoulder and right hip. So two surgeries on the shoulder, five on the hip. And so when you think about being told I have bruising versus the actual implication of what happened to me and the impact with that car, it gives you a bit of an idea of quite much a fight and a battle it's been. Ultimately, I've always been trying to get myself back to a point where I'm pain-free. I've unfortunately had to readjust my expectations and pain-free isn't uh, a realistic existence for my home, my body that I'm in. Unfortunately, the, you know, the pain of the accident and the trauma that happened to my hip lives on and I live and manage pain on an ongoing daily basis. But instead, I set my sort of expectations and my goal to get to a point where it was like, you know what, I can adapt. I can adjust the way I do things. I, work, I can work on my mental strength, work on mindfulness, balance painkillers and physio and looking after my body and accept my situation and move forwards with the home that I've got, the body that I'm in and try and make the most of every day, get up and do stuff. So if I was to sit at home and watch Netflix, I'd be in pain. If I go out and race on my motorcycle, which obviously I started motorcycling riding like this since my accident. Yes, my pain, honestly, my pain's a little bit worse than if I sat at home watching Netflix, but my mental health is so much better because I'm not just quitting. I'm not giving up, not feeling sorry for myself, moping about the accident happened and there's nothing I can do to change it. So I've kind of been on a mission to not let it control my future. And I have the power every day to get up and try and cope with the situation that I'm in in the best way possible. And the motorcycles have become this whole new kind of platform world journey for me to be able to do that. And I think the key thing there is that because I didn't ride motorcycles like this before the accident, I don't necessarily have a mental comparison. If I was to go back to kite surfing, I would judge myself. I'd have expectations. I would be comparing how I feel, the pain I'm in, how good I am at it, to how I used to be, to the Vanessa prior to the accident, where with motorcycles, it's just me on a bike. I don't have that comparison. And... You know, you said seven years. I mean, that is a long time. Were you, I mean, what happened? Were you misdiagnosed? Was something missed? Yeah. So it worked out one surgery a year for seven years. And I kind of describe it like a roller coaster of ups and downs. You know, you're bed bound, stuck looking at that same annoying bit of paint on the ceiling. And then you'd get a bit more active, do your physio, get more able, maybe get to a point where I can sit on a motorcycle. Started with a 
a little commuting bike and then a big comfortable Harley Davidson, which is really like sitting on a sofa with an engine. And then there'd be complications, things were missed. The, the body is an incredibly complicated and complex thing and joints like, you know, a hip and a shoulder. Things weren't going to plan. My pain was too high. You know, I'm 36 now, but, you know, at 28 years old, I shouldn't be this dependent on painkillers. At 29 years old, no, something's not right. 31 years old, I hurt. I need you to listen to me. Something's not right. And so there is an element of, uh, yeah, things being missed quite dramatically by the medical teams. I don't have any resentment against them because the reality is, is that we're all humans and they're under pressure. They can only, you know, act on immediate instincts of what they see and we all make mistakes. And, you know, the reality is if you do a scan of something from one angle, it looks fine. And if you do an x-ray from another angle, you can see that the bone's not even attached. You know, there's... I, I can't dwell on the fact that if I'd had my full shoulder reconstruction the week of the accident instead of 13 months later, my, my recovery from my shoulder would have been dramatically less because by dwelling on that, all it does is leaves me with really toxic, negative emotions. I just would accept it wasn't the smoothest path, but my, my shoulder is, is going well again now and, and not kind of focus on that negative. And what were those you know, we'll move away from this in a sec, but what were those seven years like? I mean, you talk about the roller coaster, but what were you, do, what were you doing when you weren't in a bed, hospital bed? I, in the first five years, I had a good year and a half off work uh, for all the different surgeries and recoveries. I had a lot of time on crutches, a lot of time where I had to go to the swimming pool for 20 minutes every day for three months to, to walk because eventually I knew if I walked in the swimming pool, I'd be able to walk outside the swimming pool and... It was a lot of rehabilitation, but there were points where I was doing better. I was a little bit more active and able, maybe not able to go back to my original sports, but the, you know, the first few years, the Harley Davidson in those small periods where I was able to ride it became a completely new lease of life. When you think about my lifestyle being completely surrounded by extreme sports, you know, my friendship circles, the hobbies, the weekends, the holidays, with all of that removed, I honestly, I didn't really see the point of much in life. Like once I was back at work, why on earth would I take time off work to do what? I'm not going to do a spa break or a city tour or something. Like I want to go do something fun. But this Harley made me realize that I could have a bit of adrenaline, a bit of wind in the hair without needing to be physically able. And so over the first few years, I think my husband and I did about 25,000 miles on the Harleys around Europe, probably rode in 15 different countries. And Yes, for Vanessa, prior to the accident, it wouldn't have been my sort of holiday. But for where I was in life, it was just absolutely incredible. So I think it's probably worth mentioning my mental health through those seven years as well, because that was worse than the physical. Despite having two reconstructed body parts, the mental health has been far more difficult. I was diagnosed with multiple mental health disorders, uh, depression, Fear of the road, that doesn't lend you well to getting on a motorcycle. Uh, change disorder, I no longer even saw myself as me. I talked about myself in the third person because this broken, pathetic mess of me wasn't me. I couldn't relate to it. I was, Vanessa was this strong, fit, capable person from before the accident, right? She could kite surf and snowboard and I couldn't look at my own form and see me. And I, I got to a point where I realised that I really was not okay. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I I needed help and I thankfully had the strength to say, right, I need help and I got help. So for anyone struggling with any kind of mental health issues, I really encourage you to ask for help. It's a huge sign of strength. It is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength and help can help a situation. Even if you feel like it's so dark that it's beyond help, I promise you there is a way to come through and come out the other side. So I got help and unfortunately there isn't a really big red button that once you ask for help, you just press it and it's like, woohoo, I feel better now. For me, it took a lot of time healing, crying, emotion, processing. And eventually I kind of got to a point where I didn't necessarily learn to love my body, but I learned to accept it. You know, the accident happened. I couldn't change it. I couldn't go back. This is where I am now. Do I want to sit around and mope in this existence forevermore? 
or do I want to get up every day and do something towards moving forwards and coming out of this? Doing my physio, looking, putting in the right nutrition into my body, you know, doing research and supplements, finding the strength to do my physio when I hurt too much and I didn't want to. All of these things were things that were in my control that were going to change my future and probably change my today. Maybe, maybe very slowly, but over time. Um, and so it was massively a journey. Now, it's probably also worth mentioning that right at the start in, say, year one, I didn't have any kind of idea it was going to be seven years then. It wasn't like I had this bleak seven-year-ahead-of-me forecast. It was kind of, right, this is going to be your last surgery, you're going to be fixed after it, and you go into it, and, you know, you come out the other side going, right, this is going to be it, we're going to be better, I'm going to do my physio, and I'm going to do all this. And then eventually they'd get to a point where I was like, I'm really hurting. This isn't right. And it was like being punched in the face again multiple times and taking, you know, you say about going one step forward, five steps back. Yeah, 10 steps back, it felt like. And so it was it was definitely a roller coaster across those seven years. And it's worth noting that over those seven years, I certainly wasn't able to ride a motorcycle all those times. There's a lot of period where I wasn't able to because I was having, you know, the rehab and surgery and getting getting back to trying to, you know, go to the toilet on my own or put my own socks on and eventually having the goal of getting on a motorcycle. And the first time I decided that I wanted to get an off-road motorcycle, because if you think about the fact that I was an adrenaline junkie before, it kind of makes sense that eventually it was like, I want to, I want to get back to sports. I want that kind of adrenaline endorphins of all of that stuff. And at this point I was bed bound after my third surgery and I was just trying to set goals and look ahead at what I could be like looking forward to or fighting for. And I knew I wasn't ready to go back to kite surfing or something for the reasons I mentioned before, like my body was very different. And I just thought, well, why don't I get an off-road motorcycle? Like getting going, getting muddy in, on a motorbike, that's got to be a lot more extreme. Thankfully, my husband's really, really supportive. So we went out and got me a little old dirt bike that was super cheap and, you know, pretty all right condition um and it was five months until I could even sit on it but it was sat there every day as a reminder as a goal as a little voice going come on Vanessa you need to do your physio you need to do whatever it is that you need to do to get to a point where you can get on me um, when I then was able to ride that bike, goodness me, took it off road just on some gentle green lanes in Oxfordshire. And yeah, it made me suddenly realise that I did not know how to ride a motorcycle. If you can ride on the road, it does not mean you can ride off road. They are like different, <laughs> different worlds. It was like being Bambi again. And I probably only managed to ride the bike for five or six weeks before I realised, and this was with full medical sign off, obviously, before I realised that my hip just wasn't right. And I unfortunately then had to go back under the knife and have more surgery. But every time I went back into more surgery, I was just setting these goals of, of when I could get back on a bike or I got a different type of bike that maybe I could ride a little bit sooner. And I remember after one of my hip surgeries, because since I got that bike, I've had four more hip surgeries. And at one of them, I ended up getting a little trials bike. So a trials bike, uh, they don't even have a seat. They're all slow, technical, balance kind of stuff. So a lot less risky than an enduro bike like I had initially got. So I thought, well, I'll get one of those and I might be able to ride the bike, even if it's a week earlier, it's a week sooner to get that kind of mental feeling of doing something again. But actually, I ended up being able to go out to the garage and just standing on it. No engine just standing on it in the garage. And it sounds so lame that like through my recovery, I just go out into the garage and yeah, I probably made motorbike noises, but I just balanced on it. And it actually helped my hip recovery because it was stability. So it was actually helping my physio exercises. And I got to the point where I could balance on this bike, like a track stand, 15 minutes was my personal best. And I don't know if anyone cycles, staying stationary on a bicycle, it's not easy. And so when I then was able to actually start the engine and ride, the improvement on my balance was so beneficial to my riding. But it was kind of like my way of going, what can I do right now that's not going to impact my hip, but give me that kind of mental feeling like I'm making progress, I'm doing something, I'm connected with my bikes. I suppose I've just always got this mindset of trying to work out what I have got in my control that I can do. 
And where does that come from? Because what you're saying, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so much of your recovery and the positivity that you found in it is in your head. Yeah, I. it's always about trying to look at the glass half full and not half empty. And uh, I know it probably sounds like I've got it all figured out and I'm really positive and driven. It's well worth mentioning that I still have my own battles. I still have imposter syndrome. I'll look in the mirror, not like what I see. I have self-doubt. I have self-hate. I don't always believe in myself. I feel like I want to quit some days, especially when my pain's getting strong. And I know that that's normal. And I know that all of us have that. I think just some of us won't admit it or don't want to talk about it or try and push it under the carpet. So I'm very honest in that I have those challenges. I suppose for me, it's about acknowledging that and being kind to myself and realizing, you know what, I have gone through a huge amount of trauma in the past. Um, and everybody in life is having those battles and struggles. So I'm not on my own. You know, do I need to ask for help? Do I need to talk to someone about it? Do I need to adjust what I'm doing? If my hip's bad, do I need to stand up? Do I need to sit down? Do I need to take a painkiller? And actually just acknowledging that it's okay to not always be okay is is really powerful for me in being kinder to myself. And when that kind of thing happens, it's often a case of I've got a massive to-do list and, you know, I'm overwhelmed by just life and the size of the mountain that you're trying to climb. And I just try and break it down into smaller bits, work out priorities, um, work out where I could maybe get support from other people and sort of just break it down into smaller steps, uh, get rid of things maybe that actually, you know what, I don't even need to do that. That's not even in my control. I'm not even going to think about it and focusing on, on the core important things, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of what you're saying is resonating. <laughs> so you obviously you've told me what happened up to the point where you're, you know, you're standing on the bike for 15 minutes at a time. And then if you go and, you know, look at your Instagram, social media, YouTube right now, you know, it's very different to standing on a bike in a garage. What was that first step into kind of muddy off-road adventure and how did it happen? Yeah, so it's definitely been a journey of stepping stones. And so if you rewind to, I started off-road riding about seven years ago now, and I've had four hip surgeries since then. It's not a case of back seven years ago, I went, right, I want to go and do the Africa Eco Race in January 2024. It's probably, I mean, it's the original Dakar. It's up there, one of the toughest endurance races in the world. Absolutely not. If you told me that's what I was going to be doing, I'd have choked on my drink, laughed at you and told you you were absolutely bonkers because I don't even know how to ride a motorcycle. Uh, but everybody that is doing anything in the world started somewhere and we're all just humans. So I'm a big believer in the fact that anyone can learn to do stuff. And if you just put your mindset to things, we can learn and upskill and get resources. And, you know, that thing that you've always been putting off trying to do for all those years, just go and do it. Like, stop putting it off. Um, so it started with, with this first little bike doing some gentle green laning in, in Oxfordshire and Wiltshire. Unfortunately, that bike had a kickstart and I wasn't able to kickstart it with my hip. So every time I needed to start the bike, I had to get my husband to start it, which is incredibly awkward. So that bike didn't last very long and I ended up getting a slightly smaller, easier bike, which also had a kickstart. So that didn't last very long. So I ended up getting one with an electric hip saver button. <laughs> so it was an electric start. That bike lasted a good couple of years and... It was just a case of, you know, started green lading, started to make friends with some people that did green lading, then went to a little hare and hound and had an experience going around this sort of non-competitive track, then ended up doing some training in Spain and ended up doing a little race. And then it was like, oh, this racing's pretty good. Hated it. On the start line, first hard enduro race I ever did, I, I was actually in tears on the start line with like the fact that I shouldn't be there full imposter syndrome of not being good enough. I was the only female on the start line, which obviously probably didn't help, um, of, you know, 150 or so guys. About 40 metres from the start line was a thigh-high plastic drainage pipe. And uh, I was expected to ride my bike over this, then go around a corner, through a skip, over a, uh, a stone rock garden, up a hill, and it was like, this is going to go so badly. But I had been 
practicing stuff. I'd started doing trials at this point and I'd been told I was good enough to be in this race. So there I was on the start line, wishing the earth would crack open and eat me up and take me anywhere else. My husband's on the intercom, he's in the race as well. And I'm like, right, Alex, you're going to have to go over the pipe, put your stand your bike up and come back and help me get over this pipe. And then we'll, we'll figure it out. Blah, blah, blah. And Alex is like, cool. Yeah. Amazing. You know, the flag goes off. I go and I absolutely nailed it straight over this pipe, bossed it round the corner. I'd walked this bit of the course and I picked a line through the rock garden. I overtook people. And by the end I finished with a, what's equivalent of a, a silver finish, which is means that you've managed to do a lap and a half. If you do one lap, you get a bronze finish, lap and a half, silver. And if you manage two laps, you get a gold finish. So not first, second or third. It's just how far you got through this brutal, hard enduro terrain. And so well, anyway, we're driving home from this event in South Wales. And my husband and I have both gone, well, that was really fun. How do we do more of these ridiculously hard, hard enduro races? And we'd heard about this race called Red Bull Romaniacs. The fact that it has Red Bull in the name is a little bit of a clue of how disgustingly brutal it is. And before we got home on this three-hour drive, we had signed up. Now, at this point, there was absolutely no way either of us were even going to make the start line, let alone the finish line of this race. But we had a year to train. We put money down on the table and we had time. And every single weekend that came where we were like, oh... No, nope, we've got a goal, we've got a date, we've got Romaniacs and we've put money on the table, we need to make the finish line. So we trained. And yeah, really proud of how well we trained. Uh, we, we finished. The year I did Red Bull Romaniacs was, I think, five or six hundred males and six females on the start line. It, it is a pretty disgusting race, but it was amazing uh, and horrible all at the same time. I then decided to that I wanted to try desert racing. I've obviously skipped a good few bits because this is over a course of a few years where, you know, I've been focusing on trying to become a better rider. And, and you know, my first desert race was 20 months ago. And I've since done eight multi-day international races. So I've definitely pushed myself not just into the deep end, off a cliff into the deep end. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's just something about being in these racing environments. So if I try and describe what a extreme rally raid desert race is, because I'm guessing there might be people listening who are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So you're on a big off-road rally motorcycle, the sort that will do the, the famous Dakar race. You're looking at about 170 kilo bikes. I'm 62 kilos. So they're not small bikes. You'll be doing anywhere from 300 to 475, 500 kilometers a day. I think my longest day has been 800 kilometers. Uh, and you'll be doing that for anywhere from five, eight. My next race is 14 days in a row, burning anywhere between six to 800 calories a day. And you're following a piece of paper on your handlebar which has your mileage, symbols, abbreviations that are in French, so not even in English, and compass bearings for your navigation. And you'll be using that navigation to navigate across the desert on your own, on a motorcycle. The last rally I did about five weeks ago was in Morocco. The peak riding temperature was 52 degrees. 40% of the moto category finished that race and two people didn't come home. Yeah, but I finished. So I'm very proud of that. I came 25th uh, overall in the in the moto category. And yeah, that was tough. But it was compared to my previous one, uh, I put in a lot of training and it was amazing to really feel and see that training come come through and be visible in my in my ranking my result so yeah it's uh sadistically addictive the desert stuff because it's so brutally extreme on your body were you competitive before your accident um i grew up with an older brother and two older male cousins and i was like the small girl so i had to stand my ground with them quite a lot growing up and I suppose I probably was continually having to try and prove that I wasn't just a weak little girl and keep up with the boys as such. So I'm guessing that probably helps quite a lot from, from my upbringing of um, trying to be better than I am uh, and grow so that I could keep up. 
<laughs> hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And how much is, you know, obviously you've told me kind of brief insights into what you've done over the past few years since you really got into it, but how much of that has been the competition and trying to place and how much of it has just been the experience of getting out there on a bike and doing it? Purely the experience. That I'm not a podium rider. I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I've worked really hard to the point that I'm supported. I've got sponsorship to do these races, but I am not sponsored because I'm going to win or I'm going to podium. That isn't me. I am out there to try and prove to myself that I still can hopefully show other people that you don't have to have started these things when you were a three-year-old little kid with your dad on a you know a bike in the field and going doing motocross you know you can come to very difficult sports late in life and go out and have an amazing time and a brutal time but an amazing time doing them so it's more about trying to encourage other people to realize that you know what if little Vanessa who's slightly reconstructed can do it you know what maybe I can what are my excuses how can I find ways around them let's go do it yeah yeah it's brilliant I am I'm curious as to how much your life has changed in a positive way to like what's your daily life like now do you (laughs) other work or do you just ride and play oh my goodness I work more than I've ever worked in my whole life uh, obviously I, you know, I'm a full-time content creator alongside all of the, the motorcycle riding and racing. I've got about, about 400,000 followers across the different social media platforms. And I think it's, it's probably fair to say there's a reason why not, we're not all making an income out of having social media. It's incredibly time consuming, incredibly hard work. You don't really get days off, but I am so passionate about it. I I love it. I feel alive when I'm on a motorcycle. One thing that people often ask me in relation to like my pain of being on a motorcycle is like, you know, if it it makes your pain worse, like why are you so in love, obsessed, wanting to do it all the time? And I've done a lot of self-analysis trying to work this out uh, because it doesn't really make sense, you know. But I think I've realised that especially when I'm doing these navigation desert rallies, I am so in the moment surviving the situation that I'm in, fighting the terrain, keeping the bike upright, trying to ride a pace race, uh, a, a pace race, race pace, using the navigation, not trying to get lost, not using, fixated on the navigation to not get lost. Because it's not like if you get lost, you can just go, hey, Google, where am I? Which way do I go? You have to go back to where you were last 100% sure of where you were and start again. So getting lost could cost you an hour each time. Um, And so you are so engrossed physically and mentally that I almost don't have the capacity for my pain. My pain is there and I can't do these races without painkillers. And when I get off the bike, it hits me like a freight train. But when I'm there on that bike, I am just purely alive in the moment racing. And I think that is some kind of escapism for me. And I don't mean escapism in a a negative way, like I'm trying to escape my life. But just you're just so in the moment, so in the moment. Yeah. And I think like, if you disagree with me on this, just do and tell me how wrong I am. But because I don't want to take anything away from the kind of chronic pain that you have. But in the world that I move in, you know, I go on a lot of expeditions. I do a lot of long distance running. There's an element of like, it's going to hurt. We know it's going to hurt. And I think a lot of people struggle to understand why you choose to do it when you know it's going to hurt. But a big part of it is owning the pain and accepting how much we're going to let in. 
how much is that true for you? Oh, massively, you know it's going to hurt. I think someone asked me recently, like, what is your, what is the the best moment in these races? And it's actually normally the hardest moments at the best moments. At the time, no, like you wish you were anywhere else in the world, right? But once you get through that moment and get to the end, that feeling is absolutely incredible. So the Tunisia Desert Challenge that I did last year, I was the first female to ever enter, first female to ever finish. I it wasn't smooth. It was it was an eight day moving bivouac, um, anywhere from seven to twelve hour days racing on the bike. Um, and I had one night where I had to sleep in the sand dunes because my electrics went, and I had to make a campfire and wait to be rescued. It's not romantic. It's terrifying um, being in the middle of the dunes on your own. And I had another day where my bike had a mechanical again, and I ended up having to be helivacked out very close to the line after seven and a half hours and 46 degrees heat and my body just shut down but what I realized that I just I fought on I got back on that bike every day and I made the finish line but what I realized is that it was the hardest thing I've ever done and for the first time in my life since the accident I took back control and the hardest thing I'd ever done was no longer being hit by that car it was my choice and I had put myself into that situation and it was such an empowering feeling, realising that I'd like regained control somehow. And yeah, I mean, you know these things are going to be hard. Life is hard, but you only grow outside your comfort zone. And I'm, I'm very aware of that. And a lot of people think, well, you know, how are you brave enough to go up that hill climb? And it's like, if you rewind probably five years, I was scared of a curb. But I rode down a curb and it scared me. Then I did it again and I did it again. And I, I moved my comfort line until the curb wasn't scary anymore. And then I thought, I'll go over a stick. Got comfortable, went over a log. You just keep pushing your comfort zone and where your fear is and where your pain is. And that's how you grow. I'm not even sure I answered your question. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think like there's there's a few really interesting elements to this as well around like the outdoor side of it like silly examples but you could have taken up pool swimming or chess right but you didn't (laughs) or knitting (laughs) yeah exactly and I'm interested you know you mentioned like having to overnight in the desert sometimes I think some of these races I'm guessing they're supported in that you arrive into a tented camp but are there times where you're carrying everything you need and actually you need those campcraft wilderness skills so they're all supported and there there is, you know, helicopters, medical teams, sweeper trucks, etc. But when you're in Tunisia, 200 kilometers into a stage, you are not near anything. And um, once I got rescued from those dunes, it took us three and a half hours in the rescue vehicle to get out of the dunes and get back to Bivouac. So you really are in the wilderness. So in these races, you're never carrying your tent and your wash kit and your toothbrush or anything like that. That goes in a, a support truck, which is moved from, you know, overnight take place each night it moves. But you are responsible uh, to carry the food that you need, the water you need. At the refuel stop at, at sort of, I say, lunchtime, you have a compulsory stop at, at lunchtime. Again, I'm putting my fingers in the air it's not like a romantic lunch stop like you'd expect you've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes where you've got to refuel your bike you've got to refill your camelback um i normally carry four and a half liters you've got to get your electrolytes in them you need to try and drink probably a liter while you're in this this break you've got to eat um you've got to take a moment to hopefully sit down cool down pour water over you and then you're back out again so quickly it goes really fast so you are carrying an emergency kit safety flare head torch uh, emergency blanket which will help with cold and heat a lighter obviously lit a fire i was the first person the rescue team had ever seen lighting a fire to me that was just survival i mean i I guess i was outdoorsy before if you're going to be stuck in the dunes where it's going to be pitch black freezing cold and there are scary animals of course you're going to light a fire because it ticks all of those boxes away um because the boogeyman doesn't like fire (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and the sandman's real maybe he's a sandman not a boogeyman you also have to carry a medical kit so i had emergency painkillers um you know first aids i'd take a tourniquet 
plasters, vitamin C tablets, emergency electrolytes, all that kind of stuff. You've got to carry stuff so that if you are in trouble, you can look after yourself until someone comes and you hope someone comes fast enough. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like the parallels between this and like ultra running a, well, it's the same thing, right? It's just you're out there on your own, but you're being looked after in the evening so you can crack on with doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And how much of this, again, no wrong answer is, I'm fascinated by the idea probably because of personal experience, but like the outdoors as therapy, you know, you didn't pick chess or knitting, you picked what it is you do now. And, you know, it sounds like you've had conventional therapy, counseling, things like that, but has the outdoors and adventure given you anything as part of your recovery that you don't think you could have got anywhere else or not? I'd definitely say yes, but I'm not necessarily sure I know how to put that into words. I think the the escapism from the digital world, the freedom of fresh air, the endorphins and the adrenaline, the healthiness of having a fit body. I know that when I've not done any workout or training, my energy levels and my mental health massively deplete. If I'm feeling really low, the best thing I can do is absolutely kick myself in the bottom and get myself out to do something, get my heart racing. And it just lifts all of the energy, all of the kind of fog and cloud. Um, I think previously, from the prior to the accident, one of my coping mechanisms for stress in life was sports because of the way that it just enables you to like grr stuff out. I don't know if that's a really sort of a good descriptive way, but I'm sure some people will be nodding, going, I know what you mean. You're like, you just kind of sweat it out somehow. And suddenly it just gives you a bit more clarity of, of life. And I'm, you know, as my, my recovery went through, that's definitely something that is still a factor for me. Um, uh, I'm not really sure how to put it into words, but I couldn't imagine how stagnant life would be stuck in a building all the time. Nature, the outdoors, the beauty of the scenery, the animals you encounter, the fact that you're going to meet different cultures when you travel as well, going into the outdoors, meeting like-minded people who are getting up and getting out there. You're going to get a lot more positive energy back from the sort of people that are out there seeing and doing and being active and I just think a combination of all of that has definitely and does continue to help my mental health yeah no and you mentioned earlier I think that escape from the digital world and you know you've said you're basically full-time content creator and you know I work in film run a film production company I know what that's like um in a different way you have a pretty significant sizable social media presence but how much does that impact negatively? I'm assuming there's massive positives as well, but what does that take away from you? And do you need to escape it? Do you feel on show? Do you feel the need to be there all the time or not? Yeah, I definitely do. And for the nature of what I do and the horrible algorithm word, you do need to sort of continually show up as such. And I'm getting a lot better at finding a better balance of being like, you know what? The world isn't going to end if I don't post something today. So yesterday I was meant to get a YouTube video out and I just went, you know what? I cannot break my back getting that out today. No one's going to die. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a, a, you know, a fire crew. And it's taken a bit of, I suppose, time and maybe a little bit of confidence to just trust that actually it's, it's okay. I don't always have to be there. Um, but I suppose it's definitely a balance and I do, uh, I do need to find more balance moving forward to have a little bit more downtime because I am continually sort of on the go as such because the nature of what I do means that I've got a really busy calendar and people think, oh, you're just, you know, riding bikes all the time. Riding bikes is like this percent of it versus actually processing the footage, the content, you know, replying to messages. Um, I get 200 plus messages a day and I reply to every one. All of the comments, you know, all of that is on top of a nine hour day on a bike. Yeah, it's massive. 
And how, this is quite a probing question, but would you say that your online presence represents your real life? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's this weird thing where I meet people and they're like, oh my God, you're just like you are online. And I'm just like, what? Of course I am. I mean, it's me. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, that just sounds so strange. And they're like, well, I just thought you'd be different. And I'm just like, well, then it would be all fake, wouldn't it? Like, I am, yeah, I'm me. I Cards on the table, this is who I am. This is, I'm very honest and open. I suppose it does lead me to be vulnerable, but I don't want to pretend to be anything that I'm, I'm not. So, yeah. I think that's you know we, we use this word which I'm not a huge fan of. I don't know how you feel about it, but the influencer word. Blah, vomit. Exactly, and <sighs> I think there is it's so disingenuous so much of the time. Mm. And you know, frankly, I probably shouldn't say this, but we get requests from a lot of agents and PR people to get people on here, and I just say no. You know, most of the time because I just can't can't sit here and listen to them do the speech. Yeah. Um, and it's rare, right? I think to be, it's rarer to be real and probably a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. It's, there are a couple of things in my life I don't share. Um, like my dad's health at the moment. Um, largely because I don't want him seeing me saying how he's doing because he's not doing very well. I made that mistake, that literal mistake. That's a different story for a pub conversation. But yeah, my, my dad was unwell. I posted something about it online and then he messaged me like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's interesting. So yeah. if I can ask, like, you, I mean, you've touched on it, but where are you at now in terms of like your head, your ambitions, how you feel about life as it is? I feel like I'm on a legal high every day somehow. And then I still get huge lows most days as well. Uh, it's a balance with my 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 pain and my body of, I'm, I fight through quite a lot to do the stuff that I do. And I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm okay with it. My mental health is better for doing that in 90% of the times, but I still get my moments where I go, you know what, I'm just tired. I need to, I can't do this. I've got a massive race coming up in January the Africa Eco Race, 14 days, moving bivouac, six and a half thousand kilometres. Uh, it's going to be really, really tough. And I've also got this kind of realisation that I probably need to start not necessarily listening to my body more because what I'm doing isn't causing me damage. It's causing me pain and it will be deteriorating my hip more quickly than if I maybe did take up the chest that you mentioned. But... I need to bear in mind this is my home for the rest of my life. So I might might slightly step away from the most extreme races a little bit. We'll see. They're very addictive. And every time I do one, I go, I'm done. And then I'm like signing up to another one. But I have recently started four-wheel rally driving. And that to me is a very exciting next chapter because with my body, it's a lot less demanding on my hip being in a car than being on a motorcycle fighting the conditions. So I'm thinking some very big goals in the next couple of years as far as four wheels. Um, And so I'm the works driver for Land Rover Bowler in their Defender rally car. Bearing in mind, I actually had Bowler Wildcat posters as a teenager. It's just unbelievable. I can't believe it sort of happened. And it turns out that riding a motorcycle massively helps you in the car because you have to read the terrain like a hawk on a motorcycle. You hit that rut or that rock or you hit something wrong, you are physically going to know about it. And so when you get into a car and you can read the terrain so well, it massively helps you. I understand traction, finding traction, braking, all of that kind of stuff. And I know how to navigate and know uh, what these extreme desert rallies are like. So it gives me a massive advantage. If I can handle dunes on a motorcycle, I've learned how dunes work and shadows and grasses and winds and all of that kind of stuff going into it in a car, yeah, it's going to be a lot lot more feasible. So there's quite an exciting next chapter. I mean, realistically for me, the whole time, the biggest goal I have in what I do is to try and use my story to help encourage other people to fight life's battles and realise that 
there's way around ways around things they can adapt they can shift and actually things going wrong in life don't necessarily have to be the end you know you can get up and go and fight go and do stuff shift adapt etc so the whole time I'm able to use my story and my energy and what I do to inspire other people then that gives me energy and I'll keep I'll keep going that's for sure and if it gets to a point where people are bored of it or sick of it or aren't getting inspiration from it I'll go on a new journey in life you know so but it it also sounds like you're very good at long-term thinking which is kind of it's I think that's rare as well I think people are generally really bad at it and it also takes a little bit of bravery particularly when there are some issues like the idea of you know obviously there's the recovery long-term thinking of I'm going to get into this and we'll see what happens but now to say because you could bury your head in the sand you could be like I'm having a lovely time I'm going to do this forever but the reality is you might not be able to Mm. you're like well hang on let's start plan b now so that we can drift into that if we need to and that I think that's kind of brave is that a conscious choice or does it just feel like it's a necessity I think it's expectation management and I definitely learned through my recovery that you're setting your expectations into a realistic outcome are so important to your mental health you know I had surgeries where I came out of it and I was like in six weeks I'm gonna be back on my motorbike and I'm gonna be doing this I'm gonna be doing that no way was that ever realistic but I was so obsessed with the fact that I was going to make it happen. So at six weeks when it didn't happen and I was still, you know, on crutches and miles off, my mental health came off a cliff. Whereas actually, if I just looked at it realistically, actually done a bit more detailed research into the situation, the recovery, the outlook, I could have set myself up for a positive expectation management instead of setting unrealistic ones. And I suppose with my body and my health and my future and what I'm doing, I need to be realistic on on that as well and plan for for the future. Because I think burying your head in the sand only sets you up for more pain later. And often you're, you're not just pushing off the pain, you're piling up more pain to then have to face later. The best thing to do is just to be open, look at it, be honest, talk to people, um and not hide behind things yeah accept the situation right yeah i mean i you know over the course of this conversation you've talked a lot about the pros a lot about the cons and the realities of your life and on one hand there's the pain and everything you had before that and on the other hand there's all of these amazing things you've done and the person you are now if you could press the magic button turn it back and take that accident away would you big question so if i could go back in time you've got a magic tunnel port and i could go back to two minutes before the accident i would not change a thing and it took me probably oh it's making me cry um I think it probably took me four or five years to realise that. But if I look at my life path now and on some really fundamental levels, I can slightly statistically, even though I live and manage pain, say I wouldn't change a thing. Things like knowing what's worth fighting about or getting upset over. Thinking about a gratitude and appreciation for what you do have around you. It's so easy to just wish life was different or go on social media and think other people's lives are so amazing and why am I so not as good or whatever. But everybody has battles and struggles and challenges. And you know what? In some ways I could be grateful because that accident could have been so much worse. You know, I could have died. I could have been paralysed. Like it, it could have been so different to what it is now. And while I had some really, really dark days and some massive struggles and I still, you know, have to manage and live with that every day, I'm really grateful for the journey it's taken me on. Yeah. Going on a bike wouldn't exist, that's for sure. No. No. Well, yeah, thanks for being so honest and for humouring my tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
So tell me about what's coming next again, to give me some detail on what happens in Africa. So that is the 28th of December into January. It's a 14-day desert race. It's If you've heard of the Dakar, it's the, the, the second to the Dakar, really. It's a 14-day still. It's moving bivouac. It's doing more the original route that the Dakar used to take. So for me, heritage of what we think about the emotion when we think of the Dakar, it's the closest thing to to the Dakar to me. As the Dakar now is in Saudi Arabia and it's very different to what it used to be. Um, one of the reasons why I really like the Africa Eco Race is because I think we're very privileged to be able to go to slightly less well-off countries and race through on thousands of pounds worth of equipment that they could never even imagine being able to afford. And the Africa Eco Race does a whole long list of different initiatives to try and support those countries, such as giving out, I think last year they gave out something like 2,000 solar lamps to school children so that they could walk home from school with light and also then study in the evening because they don't have light to study. Um, they plant trees. There's all kinds of different initiatives that they're doing to give back to those those countries. And to me, that I'm very privileged to be able to be in a situation where I can race. And if I can do that, supporting something that's giving back, then it, it's very, very powerful for me and something that I'll do. So I'm also an ambassador for Two Wheels for Life, who helps support getting medical uh, treatment and support to poorer countries and so with tools for life they're actually doing a competition so you can enter where you could come and get a vip trip to the finish line in dakar at the end of the africa eco race and you'll get to meet me i'll take you for drinks you get to meet the yamaha racing team there's a whole load of prizes and all of the funds for people buying tickets is to help again deliver medical support to to people in countries like gambia etc um, so I think the reason why I've picked that race is because it, it's giving back uh, and also giving me the biggest challenge I'll ever go through in my life. At this point of time, I've already started having nightmares about the race. I'm genuinely terrified. It's going to be disgustingly hard. It's going to be really long. Burning between six and 8,000 calories a day for 14 days isn't going to be an easy toll on my body. Um, my poor husband will be at home watching a little GPS dot on a map, hoping that it keeps moving. He's not entering um, that one then. Say that again. He's not entering that one then. No, no, he doesn't do any of the desert racing, no. <laughs> That's my uh, sadistic obsession. Uh, yeah, and in the months between now and then, I've got to do a lot more training. I'm going to increase my fitness. Uh, I've got the bike and all the kit already got trips on a Pali in Romania, I'm going to Iceland off-roading, um, going on some GSs in Spain, lots of uh, random different things going on, uh, but with sort of a focus point on this race in January, that's for sure. This is like, it, it's like a deliberately naive question, right? But okay. riding a motorbike can't be that hard work, you know, six to 8,000 calories a day, what makes it hard? Have you ever tried walking in deep sand or across a rocky riverbed? Yes. Have you tried running across it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Have you tried riding a bicycle across it, through no. it? No. Have you tried riding a motorcycle that's three times your body weight and doesn't <laughs> want to stay upright on its own? No. Yeah. It's unbelievably hard work uh, I would probably say that off-road motorcycle riding in that kind of extreme terrain is probably one of the most physically and mentally demanding things there is because to take an example and this is not downplaying how hard doing a marathon is there's an incredible amount of mental and physical strength to do a marathon but in some ways you're just putting one foot in front of the other for a long period of time over and over again. Like the London Marathon, most of the time you're on tarmac, you might have to avoid a couple of curbs, but you're just one foot after another for, I don't even know how many hours a marathon is, three, five, seven, how speed you are. Yeah. On a motorcycle, you're fighting completely varied terrain that's constantly trying to get your motorcycle on its ass. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I should say that word. Constantly trying to get your motorcycle on, on its side, falling over, right? Whilst using really complex navigation, 
I mean, you're using compass bearings and symbols to navigate through the desert. Yes, sometimes you're on traps, tracks, but sometimes you're completely off piste through dunes. It's the most demanding thing mentally whilst trying to race and keep going in in those conditions if you think about you know some of the top speed top speed i went at my last rally was about 145 holding on to a motorcycle and keeping it pinned and straight that was actually down a 25k beach straight beach strip uh, that i went that speed it's you're you're physically holding that thing going um yeah the it's very easy to think, oh, you've got an engine. How hard can it be? <laughs> I suppose it's the same. In some, it's different, but it's like downhill mountain biking. Everybody thinks you're just falling downhill on a mountain bike. <laughs> yeah. The reality is very, very different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like you've got your weight and your arms and the balance and the core and, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm conscious of time. Um, it's been amazing. I um, always ask the same two questions at the end of every episode. And the first is, what scares you? Giving up. And what brings you hope? I kind of want to say the fact that I'm still alive. That's big. Yeah. And smiles. Anyone smiles at me. I like smiles. Smiles make the world go around and smiles are free. Ace. On that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the adventure podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.